Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. For the agency most visibly on the front lines of security, the Transportation Security Administration, in some ways, is the face of the federal government. More than its technology, its people make it tick. As millions of Americans prepare to fly this holiday season, Federal News Network's Tom Temin checked in with TSA's Deputy Administrator, Holly Canaveri. Let's start with that deputy. What does the deputy administrator do, especially after you were chief of staff? Myself, along with the administrator, we lead the 60,000-person agency and um, support them to ensure they have the tools and resources necessary to do our job. Well, but functionally, I mean day-to-day, if the administrator is the one that takes the heat and goes to Capitol Hill and so on, you kind of keep the trains running? Correct. Or the planes Uh, flying, I should say. No pun intended. Correct. Yes. And we are really focused on people, partnerships, and technology. So ensuring every day we are focused on all three of those. And that we said at the outset that as chief of staff, you were concerned with staff more than the chief side of that. And this idea of partnerships among people. Tell us more about your philosophy and some of the activities you, you had under that kind of rubric of partnership. Partnerships is uh, critical to TSA and our mission. Um, So we have a number of partners, federal partners, of course, um, airports, airlines, rail, mass transit, uh, law enforcement, uh, our international partners, pipelines, um, and also labor. So we have quite a few partners in our mission space to ensure the security of the transportation systems. And what is your way of going about strengthening those partnerships so that because they can be that connection can be adversarial or it can be, oh, here they here they are. Absolutely. Having the conversation, bringing in early and talking to each other and finding areas where we can mutually agree and move forward together. Well, give us an example. Say airports probably are annoyed, you know, because TSA is always reconfiguring. There's new technology that comes in, new line management techniques, and they seem easy to say, well, it's going to stick this machine in, let's going to try this way of lines. But it's huge logistics and infrastructure work that is often carried out by airport staff or their contractors. So there's interplay there. Correct. And we work with these partners early. So well before construction projects begin, we um, are meeting, talking about configurations, um, the security setup, um, and how we can work together to ensure an efficient and secure uh, experience for the traveling public. I mean, what drives airport operators? Those are sort of quasi-governmental authorities in most cases where even their own lines of authority are kind of hard to untangle. Absolutely. So um, efficiency, first and foremost, ensuring that providing an efficient, secure experience. So the experience for the traveling public, that really is what drives us both, frankly, to ensure that the traveling public has a good experience and it is a safe experience. And I know the TSA as a operating philosophy is always trying to shave time off of the screening process. People may not understand it from the outside, but one second of faster screening or five seconds per individual, you know, adds up to a lot of shorter lines at the end of the day. How do you translate that down to the people that actually are doing the work? If you have a theoretical approach, this is going to be great but it's being 
administered by all sorts of people at all sorts of locations. Right. We work closely with our partners to ensure that we meet our wait time standards. So for the standard line, it's 30 minutes or less. And for the TSA pre-check line, it is 10 minutes or less. And so we do all work together. And I think some travelers who maybe haven't been traveling uh, for quite some time, perhaps pre-pandemic, um, might not be familiar with some of the new technology that TSA has been working with our partners to put in place. Um, so we are making improvements and some checkpoints have new machines that allow passengers, for example, to scan their own IDs. And um, also we some airports have our new computed tomography, otherwise known as our CT machines, which produce high quality 3D images that can be rotated uh, up to 360 degrees for more thorough visual analysis of the carry-on bag contents. And that actually will also speed through the process. There'll be less manual bag searches. We're speaking with Holly Conavari. She is the Deputy Administrator of the Transportation Security Administration. And I want to ask you about labor relations because they were rough for a long time, and now AFGE is in there. What are they like, and how do you how do you effectuate policy and procedural changes when there's kind of a third element in the in the what was a binary equation of you and the employees? Now you've got the union in there. The union has been a great partner. Speaking of partnerships, and we are working on a collective bargaining agreement, and we are very excited about the path forward. You mentioned our workforce. So we are have implemented our new pay plan here at TSA, and it has been, uh, the impact has been tremendous. We have seen historic retention levels at, at this point, and, um, and then we have great staffing, especially in, in anticipation of this busy holiday travel season. It's a technical job that they do, the screeners, the people on the, on the front line there, and it's probably the most seen and most encountered federal agency at a personal level for most Americans. How much does human relations skill come into what it is that you are looking for in individuals who want to become TSOs with the understanding they have some pretty technical, sometimes, you know, law enforcement types of activities they also have to do? So we have a a very robust training regimen for our transportation security officers to include 200 hours of training and a um, module on the customer experience. So how they engage with the public, because as you mentioned, we do see well over 2 million passengers a day. Yeah. And now we are in a holiday season where Americans are traveling back almost to pre-pandemic levels, and the planes are packed and the airports are going to be packed. What kind of planning, if anything? Is it just a matter of having sufficient staffing? Or what else does TSA do to anticipate Thanksgiving, Christmas season, et cetera, where you're going to have mobs? I'd like to talk about the holiday travel volumes because you are right. I think seven out of our top 10 heaviest travel days have been in 2023. So aviation travel has fully returned to what it was before the pandemic. Um, The three busiest days during the Thanksgiving travel period are Tuesday and the Wednesday prior to Thanksgiving and the Sunday after. So we are still running our projections, but we are anticipating the busiest Thanksgiving on record for TSA. Wow. So to your point, how are we, how are we supporting this and are we ready? Um, Bottom line is we are absolutely ready for you. All operational checkpoint lanes will be open, staffed, and operational to handle the holiday surge. 
Some local circumstances may cause higher wait times, and we will work diligently with our airline and airport partners to minimize those. Let me ask you this. It's my opinion as a two million mile flyer that the airlines have completely flubbed their incentives so that everybody's dragging gigantic and heavy bags of junk on board that should be down below. And you could put a nice felt hat overhead and not get it mushed to shreds. So that devolves to the operation the TSA has to do. Do you ever wish, by golly, charge people to carry on and, and figure out how to do good baggage handling? TSA works with our partners pretty well. And I think we have some great holiday tips for those carry-on bags. Other than don't bring them. <laughs> There is, uh, you can absolutely bring your carry-on bags and uh, you can park, pack smartly. That's it? And don't bring guns and knives? Correct. And kidding aside, we can't have firearms coming onto planes routinely. Does it ever amaze you? I mean, TSA publishes tweets and pictures and statistics on how many people try it anyway. What is with that? How do you get that across so that people don't try it? So TSA continues to work with our partners to remind travelers before they arrive at the airport checkpoint that firearms are not permitted in the passenger cabin of the aircraft or in accessible property such as carry-on bags <clears throat> or in the secure areas of the airport. We've increased civil penalties to nearly $15,000. Passengers lose TSA pre-check eligibility for five years and they're subject to enhanced screening and potential criminal charges depending on the local firearm laws. We are continuing to explore our authorities in this space. Um, for those that wish to travel with a firearm, they are permitted in checked baggage. They must be unloaded in a locked hard side case along with ammunition, and they must be declared to the airline when checking the bag at the ticket counter. When passengers bring firearms to TSA checkpoints, it leads to longer wait times for others because the TSOs have to stop lane and contact local law enforcement to resolve the security issue. So you've been at TSA a while now through a couple of administrators. It sounds like it's a place that's more than just a job for you. Correct. This is really a calling. Um, I truly believe in the mission and the people. That's TSA Deputy Administrator Holly Canaveri speaking with Federal Drive host Tom Temin. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive and subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. 
and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, 
This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, Makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor and I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture 
because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. 
you. your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.